Today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a word that a lot of people have misconceptions about, and I, for one, in the beginning, sort of rebelled when I heard this word. The word is called love. Now, when I first arrived at this program, and for many years while I was trying to grasp this program, I lived under the illusion that love was something that took place in a motel room or in the back seat of a car, or was embracing in a passionate kiss, or an act of sexual intercourse, or something like that. So it sort of amazed me, or perhaps not amazed me, perhaps confused me, that you people openly admitted love for each other right in your groups. Now, of course it should amaze me because I wasn't fully aware of exactly what your kind of love was. Now, I don't know about the women, but in general, I think most men assume that kind of an attitude when they see love being talked about or being demonstrated. Uh, in my own case, and I think I'm an average guy, a lot of people... Uh, Believe it or not, has a fear, a certain kind of fear for love. Uh, love, uh, to many of us, means sort of a, a possessive, uh, permanent thing, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm always just scared, you know, and I don't say this to be cute or funny. It's like if somebody says, I love you. Uh, I almost get a fear, because that means they're saying, and I want to possess you. And, and I want to know everything that you do. I want to be every place where you go. And, and, and they want to be together uh, as one. Now maybe that is love in the opinions of others or to suffice some other kinds of definitions. But I don't believe that that's the kind of love that we talk about in AA. Now, I took a moment just this morning to look up in the dictionary uh, the definition of the word love. And uh, one thing that surprised me right off the bat is about a five-inch paragraph following the word love in the dictionary that lists very, very many assorted, and I said assorted, not sorted, uh, definitions of the word love. And I guess if you use a little bit of open-mindedness, you can accept all of those definitions of love. I didn't find any confusion in their definitions, as I do when I seek definitions of the word alcoholism. But the one that stuck out, and the one that I think applies not only to me, but to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, is this definition. It said love is a feeling of brotherhood and goodwill towards other people. And that's about what I think I understand as love. I'm not unique either in this statement. I have heard many people, male and female, tell me that they don't believe, and I'm one of them, that they don't believe they have ever actually in their life, felt the real meaning of love, had a real sort of whatever the hell it's supposed to be. Uh, I 
just to think love was something that happened in high school where the sky rockets go off and the clouds turn blue and, and the whole world becomes a rainbow and uh, you want to live and die, as I used to say on many occasions, for Antoinette Sanaporo. I guess that was love in, in its certain sense. Uh, other people would call it infatuation. Uh, Donny Osmond would sing it as a song called Puppy Love and, and things like that. I'm not comfortable accepting that as the definition of love. I accept fully the definition that I just read to you. And I see it as it's expressed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And even in AA, we go a little bit beyond that definition of love. Now, love, of course, is nothing new to us. But love in AA, as I see it, as this is expressed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, is sort of a concern about other people who misunderstand your guidance, just as you and I misunderstood our parents' guidance when they expressed love to you and I. You see, my father and mother didn't express love to me in motel rooms or in the back seats of cars. How did your parents express love to you? How did they express, as that definition says, a feeling of goodwill towards other people? Well, first you have to imagine what in the hell is goodwill. Goodwill is well-being and concern. I looked that up in the dictionary, too. So, love, then, is concerning yourself about the well-being of others. And that's exactly what our parents did and that's exactly what you and I had misunderstood. I challenge anyone who sits here in this room today, if you have the power of recall, to say to yourself that there wasn't at least one time in your childhood when you hated your mother, or you hated your father, or wished you had a different mother, or wished you had a different father. And why was that? Was it the day your father told you you couldn't do this? Or was it the day your mother said you can't do that? Was it your father saying, no, you can't go out after 10 o'clock? Was it your mother saying, get down from that tree before you break your neck? Was it your parents saying, make sure you have your rubbers and raincoat on, it might rain? Was it then when you said, them sons of bitches, why don't they leave me alone? He's the rottenest father in the world. He won't let me go to the football. He won't let me do this. He won't let me do that. Why? Why did your mother want you down out of the tree? Why did she want the raincoat and the rubbers on? Why did they tell you to keep your hands off of the matches? And why did your father say, don't touch nothing on the top shelf? Because they knew that those things could hurt you that they could harm you. And because they were concerned in your well-being, you misunderstood, and I misunderstood their commands. I thought they were forms of punishment. Don't do this. 
Don't do that. Make sure you're in before 12. Don't drive the car on the ice. Don't do this. Don't do that. And that's the same thing that's in AA. Our love in AA is very, very misguided. I've often used a, a sort of an antidote to express what I believe is AA love. I'd like to tell it to you now. There are people who have heard me give this antidote, but it's the best way I know of showing you what I think the love of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the love of one alcoholic working with another alcoholic represents. I try to create a, a fictional scene. Actually, it's not fictional. I was in a place like this once. I want you to imagine that you're high up in the Sierra Mountains today, and it's a beautiful day out. And let's, uh, for the sake of continuing this imaginative process, let's make believe it's January or February. And here is a bright, sunny afternoon, and you're sitting in a very comfortable, beautiful ranch-style home in, on one of the snowy peaks of some particular scenic part of the Sierras. And in your living room, let's say your living room has one whole side as a complete picture window. It's all glass, that whole side right there. And scattered about the living room are comfortable chairs and sofas, and perhaps on the north end of the living room, you've got an old archaic stone fireplace, and there's a very picturesque fire just roaring away in the fireplace and the scent of the pine is drifted in, and a real feeling of comfort as you sit inside of this beautiful home, gazing out the window at that beautiful scene, perhaps a scene of virgin snow laying untouched all across the mountainside, and the huge green pines and the redwoods soaring way up into the air, and the blue background, and in this room, as you sit there, perhaps you've got your child. Let's say your child is only about three or four years old. Now, undoubtedly, all people love their children, love their children deeply. Men and women will die for the protection of their child, just as all animals will face death in order to protect their children. So the love is there. And in this living room as you're sitting there today, you've got the little child that you love. And as he or she is playing around on the floor, playing with the little play school toys and stuff like that, you've kept the temperature just right in that room, you've got it warm, you've got this child protected from the cold that's on the other side of that glass. Out there where the snow is, it's perhaps 15 above zero or 20 above zero. It's cold out there. And because you love this child, you've got him inside, protected, protected. Now, another form of love comes into the picture. Love as portrayed by giving of one's experiences, of one's lessons, making available to people you love new lessons in living. And this is expressed by the parent when he tries to expose the child to something new, 
something that's beautiful. Just as you might think of this little child today in that living room of, I want him to play in the snow today. I want him to experience the joy of being in the snow. I want him to enjoy all of this beauty. So I'm going to put this child that I love out into the snow. All right, what do you do? Now, you sure as hell don't pick him right up off the floor and open the door and place him out in the snow, because probably all he's got on is a little pair of romper pants or a little play suit that a little kid would wear. And you're not about to put him out in 15 degrees temperature dressed like that, are you? You want to protect him. So the first thing you'd do would go to the closet, and you'd probably get what they call a snowsuit. Now, that's very strange that there are people in California who don't even know what the hell a snowsuit is. People who live down around San Diego and Palm Springs, and I have, guess they have no need for them. In case there are any of you here like that who have never seen a snowsuit, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about them. That's a little garment that you put on little kids when you put them out, as it says, into the snow, a snowsuit. It fully protects them. It's sort of a jumper-like affair with a hood on it. Now, maybe you've never put one of those on a little kid. I'd like to tell you how it would take place that afternoon as you got ready to express your love by placing that child out in the snow. The first and easiest way to do it is to bring the child between your knees and turn his rump towards you. In other words, he's backwards to you. Then you flip the snowsuit over to the front of him and you place his right leg in first and you pull it up then you put his left leg in and you pull it up. Then you give it a little tug to get it up over his hiney. And then about that time, you've got to take two little three-year-old arms and place them into two little holes that represent sleeves. Now, this act isn't quite as simple as it was putting them legs into the legs. Because just about the time you've got his right arm up here, the hole is down here. And then when the hole is up here, his arm is down there. And this process continues to go on and on as you try to match arm with hole. And it begins to get a little frustrating most of the time. And your ass begins to get bright red. And you begin to boil at a high temperature as this process goes on and on until finally in anger, expressing love, you grab him. And you shake him in your palm and you say, Stand still, you son of a bitch! <laughs> and that little three-year-old kid freezes in terror. And as he stands there frozen, that sleeve on, that sleeve on, pull up the zipper, tie the cord, pull the hood over, whoo, pat him on the butt, Place him out into the snow, fully protected because of your love. And what do you think he's thinking out there? <laughs> that son of a bitch and father of mine. I hate my mother. And all you had done was express love. And that's quite similar to the love in AA, you know. When I cut people short, or I make smart, nasty, sometimes remarks that hurt. That's love. That's right. That's love. You 
don't understand it yet. But you will come to understand that, and you will come to do it yourself. Because there are many things that require something to have a comparison with. In other words, you never more comfort. It would be impossible for you or anybody to ever know what comfort was unless you had experienced pain. You don't know what warmth is until you experience cold. You must have an opposite. You must have a point of comparison. Now, a lot of people will say, well, if love is so important, why don't you express it in the act of sympathy, in forgiveness, in the so-called compassion that most people throughout the world, that's the way they express it. And it works in most areas. Now, I don't know why it doesn't work with the field of alcoholism. I don't know why you and I as practicing alcoholics take advantage of people who are sympathetic towards us. I don't know why you and I don't accept compassion as it's really portrayed by one alcoholic helping another. I don't know why. But that's not so bad that I don't know it. Science don't know it either. And they've got more marbles than me. But we have come across a strange paradox in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, there are many paradoxes in our strange and unique program. You've heard some of them. Some of them are, you got to give it away in order to keep it. That drives some of the normal people crazy when they hear you say that. They figure, what in the hell are them nuts talking about? They've got to give it away in order to keep it. Well, what else do we say? Haven't you at some time or another heard somebody say, you got to die so you can live? Now, that seems unique, too. How do you live after you die? But you and I know what we're talking about. We're establishing points of comparison. We've got our hurt to eventually appreciate what will come in sobriety because of the recalling of that hurt. Another one that we use sometimes in, in AA, or I guess we don't use it in AA as much as we should, it's when we make comparisons by comparing our drinking careers with our non-drinking careers. And I think many of us use that as an excuse to return to drinking. What I'm saying is that many people compare the first days of their drinking with the first days of their sobriety. And that's not a fair comparison. Because you're comparing yourself when you were 17, 18, possibly 20, 21 against whatever you are now. Nobody started out, in my opinion, as an alcoholic. Nobody started out in the hell and the horror. The beginning was somewhat pleasant to all of us. 
So it's not fair to only pick out that one pleasant experience in your drinking career and then compare it with the beginning of your new way of life that comes with sobriety. Compare it, if you can, the last days of your drinking with the first days of your sobriety. Now, in this world, there's plenty of room for love. And I sure as hell am not trying to sound like a politician or a churchman or anything like that. But I read the papers and watch the news and I've got two eyes. I can see what's going on every day. In our society today, we have a lot of unrest, a lot of anger, a lot of hate, a lot of prejudices. We've got a whole lot of crap going for us every day. If you want to reach out for crap, there's plenty of it there every morning when you get up. But also in every day in that pile is a piece of love. It's a piece of love. But you've got to reach in and grab that out just as you reach in and grab out prejudice or hate or greed or envy or lust or whatever the hell you're going to grab. Experience has taught us, if you have the capacity to be completely honest with yourself, that the happiest of all people you have ever known were those who expressed daily and continually love as defined in a feeling of brotherhood and goodwill towards other people. Just ask yourself who you admire the most. And once you point or pick out this person, ask yourself, what? Why do I admire this person? And as I said, experience will bear out the fact that it was a man or a woman dedicated to love, to love. Now there's a prayer. I don't even know when that started. I don't even consider it a religious prayer although it's named after a saint. And you know that's that prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It's shown around a lot in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd almost be led to believe that the founders of our program even went as far as establishing some of our so-called suggestions and steps from the wisdom and the words of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. So you see, the first line in the prayer of St. Francis is a calling where you call upon Lord, God, as you understand him. And you ask him to make you an instrument of his peace, of his peace. Oh, nay, eh? That's what we're asking for. That's what we're seeking, I guess. When you and I seek sobriety, we're looking for peace, peace of mind, I guess. We want the turmoil to end, the hideousness to end, the horror to end. We want the fears removed, the remorse, the disgust. We want that thing that I've called half-suicide, you know. And I still believe in that. 
that there's never been an alcoholic unless it was done by accident. Whoever really intended to commit suicide, as it is understood, I think most alcoholics, or you and I, when we holler out, as that woman did in here last night on the ground, I wish I were dead. You and I wish the horror was dead and the hideousness was dead. We, all, we wish all the pain was dead, not the comfort. And I guess the best way you could ever prove it is almost an impossibility. We could all line up on top of the Golden Gate Bridge and we could think of all the problems and troubles we got for not enjoying this life. We could all jump off together. And then halfway down, maybe God would reach over and say, I just solved all of your problems, come on back. How many of us would be grasping then to try to come back? See, death in finality is not what you and I want. We want the hell removed from our life. The living death, the living death. And it has been proven that the best way to remove that horror and that hideousness is by replacing it with an act called love. And again, not rumble seat love or motel love, the love of most common of all cliches, one drunk caring for another. Now, you might want to sit there now in your confused state and deny that, but before you deny it, recall that we have been expressing this love now one drunk to another with a high degree of success for 37 years. We're no longer a theory. We're no longer an experiment. We're no longer just a thing. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is now fact. Factual living proof that it does work. Now in this prayer of Saint, of Saint Francis, second line goes on to say, where there is hatred, let me sow love. Second line, second line of a prayer that in many people's opinion is the most read prayer in the world, the prayer of Saint Francis because it's almost non-denominational. doesn't make any reference to Mary, mother of Jesus. doesn't make reference to the Buddha. just makes reference to a guy called Lord, God. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Again, you're asking him in this prayer to allow you to participate in this brotherhood in this act of goodwill, in this act of concern and care for people close to you, people around you, people just like you. In this act of love, you get rid of a lot of self-disgust, a lot of self-disgust. Because in the expression of an act of love, you remove yourself from yourself. And that's why this, this clean, 
good feeling, regardless of, of what others say and of what others do. It's the feeling that you have within you. That's the only feeling that counts. When you go further into that prayer, I think the third line says, and where there is injury, let me pardon, let me pardon, let me make amends, right? Our program says that too. It says, let's make direct amends. I was just talking to somebody here, whether it was yesterday or the day before, I don't know what. What a waste it is in carrying resentment, in carrying envy, in being gossipy, in being jealous. Because these are all things that in order for you to participate in, you have to enter into somebody else's life. You see, you don't gossip about yourself. You don't get jealous of yourself. You don't envy yourself. You have to do this with another person. And generally, in most cases, it's somebody who doesn't even know you're doing it. And you're taking a part of your life. And you're throwing it into a little bit of a turmoil. I don't know how much, depending upon what degree of envy it is, what degree of jealousy it is, what degree of gossip it is. But you're making yourself uncomfortable. And we only talked as late as last Thursday on what happens to people like you and I when we get uncomfortable. Because we insanely think that by drinking we'll get comfortable. In this injury where we ask for pardon, that means you have to forgive. And where do you start to forgive? We suggest in the program of alcoholics and others that you forgive yourself. First, I don't think that there's a person on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that intended to become the cancer that he or she represented to his friends and relatives and family as a result of his or her drinking. I don't think it was all through your wants and desires to hurt that you can continue to drink. Hell, I think most of us have said the same thing. Leave me alone. I don't want to bother anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. See, and that's what we thought. We weren't hurting anybody. But now we know. Now we know different, don't we? We were cancer. But not by choice. Not by choice. So forgive yourself for this. It wasn't all you're doing. It wasn't all you're doing. And then St. Francis' prayer goes on to say, and where there is doubt, give me faith. Give me faith. Faith in what? Not a temple? What do you want, a, a marble statue? That's not what they're talking about. Talking about, give me faith in myself. And how do you get faith in yourself? How do you get to a point where you think, well, Christ, maybe I can get well. Maybe I can restore some dignity to my life. How do you do that? You can't do it alone. Again, you've got to have a point, a point of comparison, something to prove to you that it can be done. 
how often, for Christ's sake, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. I lived for a year and a half on that friggin' street, and I saw them guys crying, men crying, and tears, and begging, and screaming, and hollering. How can I become whole again? How can I become a man again? And they never knew it. You know why they didn't know? Because they're looking at each other. You're looking at somebody just as sick or sicker than you. And this justifies your belief that it can't take place. Unless you remove yourself from there. And place yourself squarely in front of an example. And that's what this program does. It gives you the example. It gives you the proof of fulfillment that it can be done if you want to accept it. If you want to accept it. And if you're sick enough to deny what you can see with your own eyes, this program can't help you. It can't help you. So go out and seek this faith that is represented in other people. And then that faith will give you hope. Hope. That prayer says where there is despair, give me hope. And surely we come here with despair. We don't come here riding on circus wagons and blaring horns and beating drums. We all come here with a large degree of despair and hurt. Most of us come here pretty well beat, pretty well not only given up on ourselves, but given up by other people. But have hope if you have faith. And then the prayer says, where there is darkness, give me light. Give me light. And that's so true, because you see, in the vacant eye of the practicing alcoholic, all he or she sees is darkness. It's dark where you and I came from. It's dark at 4.30 in the morning, isn't it? Isn't it held a gray darkness? I'm not talking about the peace that comes in black darkness. That early morning gray darkness that you and I know. And how about that darkness that we know even in the sunlight? When the world is all bright about us, and yet it's the most dark and dismal place we have ever known. That's what we want to shed, that kind of darkness. And we seek the light, the light that comes in reality of being able to touch the sun. That's right. Everybody can touch the sun because the sun is all over. See? You just got to reach out and touch it and feel it. You feel its warmth, you lie in its warmth. You let it touch you. They call that living reality and the prayer asks for that. And then in the last line, it says, where there is sadness, let me bring joy. Those are the 12 suggested steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. For the 12th step in our program, it says, let me, let you, 
as a result of these steps, carry this message, carry this hope to the alcoholics who still suffer. Instead of sadness, let me bring joy. And that's why it has worked for 37 years. Nothing else is involved in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous but a pure act of love. Pure act of love. Sure, we laugh at some of the ways it's expressed. They called my friend Clancy's meeting down in Ohio Street in Los Angeles. Clancy, I hear his tape here all the time. Clancy does his thing. He fools around with a lot of young people, or hippie people, and all of that, and they call it Clancy's Love-In. Christ, they show up there at the big hall on Wednesday nights, and they're all kissing and smooching, and Jesus Christ, you wonder when the hell the, the meeting is going to take place, you know? But, but that's their thing, you see? That's their love-In. They criticize and make fun of uh, Chuck C., you know, old slobber lips. That's what I call them, you know? They've been doing it for years, you know. He goes to a meeting, he's going to be the speaker at the meeting. He stands way in the back in a coat room or some goddamn place. Till about seven minutes before the meeting is going to start, then he makes the kissing parade, you know. He comes flying down the alley, swapping tongues with everything he can get his hands on, you know. But they say that's love. See, that's love. But that's the same kind of love as, as you see a guy coming through this door, holding a drunk over his shoulder. No, he ain't kissing him. He ain't slobbering all over him. But it's that love. And then when he gets a little well, you give him a little hell. When you give him a little hell, he doesn't understand that as love either. But that's just like your mama and your papa did when they gave you hell. Now we go on and on in AA trying to live, trying to enjoy life. Now, I don't know what you want out of life, and you don't know what I want out of life. All of us are individualists when it comes to desiring a way of life. Helen Keller, whom, in case you don't know, was the blind woman, had a little saying which hangs in my office that describes what I want better than anything that I know. And sometimes I think it applies to all of us. Helen Keller said, Life is either a daring adventure or a nothing. And that's how I want my life. I want my life to be full of adventure. I want it to be full of experience. I want it to be full of brotherhood. I want it to be full of goodwill. I want more love in my life than I want hate and disgust and prejudice and anything like that. And it's funny how, as we get older, we realize this more. Do you think 99-year-old people have as much prejudice as 21-year-old people? Do you think 99-year-old people are concerned whether you're Jewish or black or rich, or poor. You think 99-year-old people give a shit whether you're a Catholic, or a Lutheran, or a Zen? No, no. Because they're so engrossed in only what they've got, their life. 
They're all engrossed in love, and they don't have room anymore. And how wonderful it is that a program called Alcoholics Anonymous came along 37 years ago and afforded people like you and I to have the same thoughts and ideas of a 99-year-old person when we were only 24 or 25 or 30 or 35 or whatever the hell age you are when you got here. A program that could teach you and I the full meaning of love. And I can't qualify it any better than being misguided or misunderstood our love. For those of you who are here from Eureka, I'll tell you a little antidote about a guy that I was the sponsor to who passed away from Eureka, who many of you know, Cliff Peterson. Cliff Peterson introduced me once at a AA thing in Eureka. I have told this story many, many times. But again, it describes not only AA love, but I'm trying to tell you how I feel. When Cliff described me, he said, Duffy is like the blind man, or the stranger watching the blind man, who had the seeing eye dog. And as the stranger stood on the corner admiring how this seeing-eyed dog could guide the blind man from corner to corner with the green light against the red light, up the curb, down the curb, in between the lines, the stranger was amazed at the love that that dog had for that man and how he wanted to protect that blind man. The one thing that the stranger couldn't understand, though, was when the dog and the blind man came to rest on one corner, all of a sudden, the dog lifted up his leg, and he pissed all over the blind man's leg. And as the stranger stood there waiting to see what was going to happen, he was really amazed because all the blind man did was reach into his pocket and get some candy. And he reached down and he gave it to the dog. The stranger could hardly hold back his thoughts, so he went to the blind man and he said, Blind man, don't you know what that dog just did to you? And the blind man said, Yes, he just pissed all over my leg. And the stranger said, well, why are you giving him candy? The blind man said, because I'm trying to find his mouth so I can kick his ass. <laughs> now, that's just about what we do in AA. You see, we approach the newcomer and we say, come to our meetings. You'll love them. Come on down. It's the same kind of people you used to drink, drink with. We have a lot of fun and we laugh and we eat cookies. You love it. We tell you all of this. And then we get you down there and tear your ass wide open. We show you what you really are. We make you hurt. We tell you things you don't want to hear. 
We tell you to get down from trees, and we tell you to put on raincoats and rubbers, and we tell you to do and to don't. And if you're misguided, if you're misguided, you'll think we don't love you. But if you'll take a moment to recall your own mother, then you'll know we do. And that's the love in our program. And in answer to why sympathy didn't work, I have told many of you why I think it don't work. There have been, I don't know how many times in my life that I have been patted on the back. I used to get patted on the back in high school, as many of you did if you played in athletics. Got patted on my back in the wars. Got patted on the back by friends, the guys I worked with, and all that kind of crap. Been patted on my back a lot of times. For the love of me, I don't think I could recall right now the first and last name of anybody who's ever patted me on the back, even though many have. But you know, there were three times in my life when I have been kicked right in the crotch. And I could tell you those guys' first names, middle initial, last name, height, weight, and what they were wearing the day they kicked me in the crotch. Because, brother, that hurt. That hurt. And I'll never forget them three. I'll never forget them. I've long since forgotten the pats on the back. But I'll never forget the hurt. And this program demands, that's right, this program demands that you never forget the hurt. And you have to do this through an act that we call humility. Not where you humble yourself to your fellow man, our humility is nothing more than reaching out to somebody just like you and saying, I need your help. Reach out. It's there now and it has been for 37 years. That's all I've got to say today. Is there anything anybody might like to add to the meeting or any questions?